0: Welcome to the Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, here comes the bomb! Do do do. This is Across the Universe. Welcome to the Blast Zone.
1: Welcome to the Blast Zone.
0: We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account.
1: And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings and some of them are about movies.
0: Movies like Across the Universe, which we'll be talking about today.
1: Oh fun, a space movie.
0: A space movie. It's like <laughs> The Martian. We'll find out. Stay tuned. Ian, how are you doing this week?
1: I am being intentionally thankful this week. We are taping this on Thanksgiving Eve. Very true. Lots to be thankful for. I am thankful for my family, for my friends, of course, for you, John, and this podcast, which brings a lot of joy and meaning to my life. Oh. So that's what I wanted to express in this little part of the show. Very Thanks. nice.
0: I'm glad that you're sharing with us. My Thanksgiving is going to be small. We're, we're keeping it very small this year due to COVID concerns. Not the usual rollicking good time, but we'll make the best of it. I've got my wife. My two lovely kids and my sister's coming up, so we'll have a good time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Got the family around you. That's what's important.
0: And I like to cook, so, you know, it's a nice day for me. Somebody else watches my kids and I just... Focus on the food all day. Oh, okay, that's a nice little break.
1: Do people come visit you in the kitchen and open beers for you? If
0: I ask, I like to be self sufficient though. But okay. yeah, sometimes I will send somebody on a beer errand to grab me one from the beer fridge.
1: It's nice to get in the zone when you're cooking, but it's also nice to be checked on once in a while, so you don't feel like the whole day goes by without you.
0: My my wife Jamie likes to say that I don't even like cooking; I like having cooked. Oh, okay, like I enjoy when it's done and everybody is complimenting me. Sure, but that's a good part. <laughs> Before the actual food is served, I'm very stressed. And she's correct. I'm an anxious person, (laughs) naturally. She's not far off.
1: No, I totally get that.
0: So now that we've said some of the things we're thankful for, why don't you tell me some of the things you're thankful you got to watch this week?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm very thankful. I watched a cool thing. It's called Jagged. It's a a brand new doc about Alanis Morissette on HBO. It's the same series called Music Box as the movie Woodstock 99, which you brought to another show and hipped me to. And that was really cool. And this is just great. I wasn't really an Alanis fan at the time of Jagged Little Pill. I appreciate her now. But then I was an angsty young man. I had very different tastes in music. But watching this, I had this realization that not only was like, I didn't like her music at the time, but I wasn't even able to perceive her. I didn't understand what she was, who she was. And this doc does an incredible job illustrating everything that she was and what a huge impact she made, what an artist she was and a writer and a phenomenal singer. So it was really cool. Just really fun. I recommend it.
0: I'm very excited for that one. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I was a little bit of an Alanis fan around that time. I mean, I was very young, but my sister had Jagged Little Pill. She's a few years older than me, so she might have been 12 or 13 at the time, okay. which I think is like the sweet spot for an album like that.
1: Yeah. Although it goes all the way up to women of Alanis's own age, which she was like 21, I think, when it came out. It just electrified this generation of young ladies.
0: So I know the album well just from hearing it from the next room very loudly and certainly respect her as a Songwriter. Don't know much about her personally, so I'm interested to dive in and get some new perspective on her. But they actually have another, you know, there was a kind of a wait between Woodstock 99 and this one. Woodstock 99 came out a few months ago, but I think tomorrow, Thanksgiving, they're dropping the DMX documentary that The Ringer also produced. It's called DMX Don't Try to Understand. It was completely filmed and edited while he was still with us, Okay. only now being released posthumously. So that's an interesting perspective because it doesn't really have that oversimplification of, of complicated people that I think can happen when somebody dies young. Right. There can be a tendency to overlook their shortcomings and focus only on their virtues, but they didn't go back and re-edit the movie after he passed. They're releasing it as it is. Were you a fan of DMX's music?
1: Just a little bit. I know the couple of hits, but I, I couldn't consider myself a DMX guy, but I, I'm very
0: curious to learn more about him. I was a big fan of his music. So so I'm very excited for this one. Maybe I'll do a little double feature now that it's coming out, and I haven't seen Jagged yet. Yeah. Anderson DMX, what a headlining bill, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let me tell you about what I watched. It is quite a big movie. A movie we talked about a little bit, particularly in our mailbag episode, and it was No Time to Die, oh, the newest there you go. and final Daniel Craig James Bond performance. Finally got around to checking it out, and you know what? It's real good. Oh, okay. It's a lot of fun. I think of the Craig Bonds. There's this theory that every other one is good. Okay. So. Like Casino Royale, good. Quantum of Solace, not so good. Skyfall, great in my opinion. Favorite Bond movie. And then Spectre, uh, hated it. Okay. Barely remember what happens in it because it's very boring. And then No Time to Die, good. i could okay. put it neck and neck with Casino Royale. So
1: Oh, that's pretty good. Good
0: step pieces, great performances. Ana de Armas, if you're not aware my number one celebrity crush so
1: Oh really okay I
0: was happy to see her in there and Daniel Craig he looks old but the movie kind of plays with that a little bit if you go back and watch Casino Royale and watch this one there's a noticeable aging going on but people age There's no way around it. It's natural. And the movie leans into it a little bit, acknowledges it.
1: That was the impression that I got, that that's something that Bonds can do that maybe, you know, Superman can't get old. But if you've got a Bond franchise, you can take each guy through some kind of life cycle of his own. And I don't know, is Bond retired at the beginning of every Bond movie (laughs) and he has to be pulled out? It seems like a trope.
0: It's starting to feel like it, at least with the Craig Bonds. I have to go back and watch some of the older ones to see if that's a trope that's been around for a long time. But yeah, pretty much always retired. It seems like you have any bets on uh, who's going to take over? I don't know. I haven't
1: heard the chatter. I have my Bonds that I grew up with. I came of awareness in the Roger Moore era, which is not necessarily the strongest Bond, but Mm. an interesting one. So I've seen a ton of them and I don't care. Pick somebody good that I've (laughs) never heard of and surprise me with somebody fun.
0: Yeah. I don't have a lot invested in the next James Bond search either, but I think it'd be cool to go in a direction for either like Richard Madden, the star of Eternals that just came out and also from Game of Thrones. People know him. He's kind of got the look, but he might be a little young for it. Or even if we're going that young, somebody like Daniel Kaluuya, who's been on fire lately would be a fun addition. Super fun. But they're both early 30s. I don't know how young they usually go for a new Bond. I thought he was like mid-40s typically.
1: That seems like a weird convention. I don't think there's any reason why (laughs) James Bond needs to not be a young guy.
0: Yeah, so age him down. Get somebody like Richard Madden or Daniel Kaluuya in there, and then you can have them hold the mantle for a longer time. And you could tell Daniel Craig was dying to get out of the role for years, probably because he's 50 and it's not easy to get in shape and do those action scenes anymore for him. I
1: bet. It's not easy for me to keep up my Daniel Craig like physique, I know. which I've never, ever attained, and I never will.
0: That's why it's, it's very difficult, like yeah, you said. That's,
1: that's just how hard it is. Almost
0: impossible, you might say. <laughs> you simply cannot do it if you're me. All right. We've talked about our fun viewing picks for the week. Let's get into Across the Universe, an exciting movie to talk about from... 2007, a little bit of a Beatles, I guess you call it a jukebox musical, right?
1: Yeah. Let's fire up the jukebox. I'm going to slam it with my fist like Fonzarelli and see what plays.
0: Now, did you know anything about this movie? It wasn't a huge release when it came out. It had a pretty big budget, but it did not make it a big splash at the box office. Were you even aware of
1: it? I was aware of it. I remembered that it had happened, but I really didn't pay much attention. I think I saw the ads and I'm like, okay, that sounds like something that I won't be interested in. And then it just quietly slipped past and I didn't have to hear about it again after that
0: honestly i remember seeing the trailer for this movie before it was released and thinking it's a good trailer okay i was taken by the trailer I also at the time i was a big eddie izzard fan and she featured prominently in the trailer So I was like, oh, this is something cool. And then I like the Beatles, you know, just fine. I I wouldn't call myself a super fan or anything. But then the movie seemed to come and go with Nary a splash to be made. And I do have to give a special thank you to a friend of the show, my personal friend, Alana, who recommended this movie to me as an episode, as an episode, if you will. It made perfect sense with Peter Jackson's Get Back coming out right around the time we're releasing this episode. You know, we like to be topical and tie into what's going on at the box office or streaming.
1: Thanks, Alana. Good recommendation.
0: But we both come in to this is novices. I never saw it before of the podcast and neither did you. Right. Not too many like that. I feel like at least one of us has always seen stuff. Th-
1: yeah. They're rare finds. This is going to be interesting to talk about it. Based on our conversation so far, we had slightly different perspectives on this. I'm prepared to be a little bit of a jerk about this movie, maybe too much so. Hopefully the audience will indulge me getting mad at this movie in ways that maybe it doesn't deserve because it's no, that's my boy. It's no, wow, wow, West. It's not offensive. It's not hurting anybody's feelings. It, it just hurt my feelings <laughs> because I'm sensitive that way yeah
0: you're the good cop ian i'm the bad (laughs) cop i don't know where this flip came from but you dislike this movie a lot more than i do which is surprising
1: yeah i'm looking at my notes now i wrote down this movie is a turd but it's a sneaky turd it takes a while before you realize the mess that you got in your pants and now that i read that it sounds too harsh Who's, who that is that? weirdly evocative language. <laughs> it's weird, and I felt betrayed because the main thing that this movie does is try to tweak your emotions. Everybody who listens to this pod knows that I love to feel feelings. I love when a movie makes me feel feelings. This movie tried to make me feel feelings, but it did it in an underhanded way. It tried to manipulate me. It did not earn any of those feelings. It tried cheap trickery, and I was offended.
0: All right. Well, do you want me to tell the people how this offensive emotional manipulation <laughs> of a movie came into being?
1: Sure. That sounds fun. Let's hear how this happened. All right.
0: The Beatles and film have a long and storied history. The Fab Four starred in two films during the height of Beatlemania, both directed by Richard Lester, with 1964's A Hard Day's Night and 1965's Help. Following the recording of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967, they would star in the mostly unscripted made-for-TV film Magical Mystery Tour, which was not nearly as well-received as their earlier movies. Step right up
1: and step right past.
0: 1968's animated Yellow Submarine would be very warmly received, and is still considered a huge achievement in the advancement of animation as an art form, but also had the least involvement from the actual Beatles, as for the majority of the runtime, the group would be voiced by other actors. The final Beatles film that was made with their involvement before their breakup was Let It Be, the 1970 documentary that chronicled the rehearsing for and recording of their album of the same name.
1: As in, please, let it be our
0: last. Hollywood would continue to be enamored with the Beatles long after they broke up, with three films in 1978 alone being based entirely around the band's work and impact, including Michael Schultz's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Robert Zemeckis's I Want to Hold Your Hand, and Eric Idle's All You Need is Cash. Prolific writer and director of theater, opera, and film, Julie Taymor would be the next person to who based their project around the Beatles, signing on to direct an ambitious jukebox musical written by Dick Clement and Ian La LaFrenet based on the Beatles' music that would tell the story of a romance between two characters named Jude and Lucy, interspersed with commentary on class, civil rights, psychedelics, and the Vietnam War.
1: And that's just the opening scene.
0: Filmed between September 2005 and January 2006, with a reported $45 million budget, the film was scheduled for a 2006 release but faced some controversy when a shorter cut of the film was shown to test audiences without Taymor's knowledge or consent. Revolution Studios and Sony, who respectively produced and distributed the movie, urged Taymor to go along with the shorter cut as they feared the 133 minute runtime of Taymor's edit was too long. It was long and winding. Like a this dispute delayed the film's release with taymor's version eventually being approved and a limited release scheduled for September 14th, 2007. Reviews were mixed with the film currently sitting at 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. It would never get a true wide release of 2,000 plus screens, and it would eventually leave theaters after earning only $29.6 million, which would have made it a financial disaster, even if the budget was not eventually confirmed to actually be upwards of $70 million, information that was made public when Revolution Studios was sold. The film has found a loyal Audience in the years since, however, and as recently as October 2020, Tamor confirmed that she was interested in producing a sequel set during the 1970s.
1: Wow. Where did they hide the budget? In a yellow submarine or something? How did they keep secret an extra...
0: $45 million seemed high. I don't know where $70 million came from. That is surprising. I mean, there is some interesting imagery and special effects being used in the movie, but they mostly seem either practical or done in an intentionally cartoonish way, which doesn't feel like it would be that expensive.
1: If they spent millions on the papier-mâché heads, they may be overpaid.
0: I mean, that I want you sequence seemed expensive. The Uncle Sam sequence when he's first checking into the, what do they call
1: them? The recruitment center, the drafts something. It's like where you report to Yeah, when you've been drafted. That brings up one of my points about this movie is why is all the big production spent on the war and with (laughs) psychedelia as second place? And then it's supposed to be a love story, but the love story stuff is all stripped down. There's sometimes almost no choreography, even or special stuff they do. They just do like a minimum and then they're like, oh, but the war, we're gonna fucking go all out and do a giant CGI production dance number. Well,
0: because some of the Beatles songs have words in them like revolution and gun. So they need to have big sequences to justify using these songs. I mean, that that's the thing with jukebox musicals in general, and this one in particular is like a lot of this stuff just seems like we like this song. We want to use this song let's make a sequence where we can use the song and it kind of makes sense thematically
1: i have to admit that i am not a big jukebox musical aficionado and i don't know if i've seen another honest goodness jukebox music jukebox can't even say it a real jukebox <laughs> musical you're so
0: unfamiliar with them the words will not come out of your mouth i don't even know how <laughs> one who says these words the hairspray was a jukebox musical mamma mia and mamma mia too um,
1: okay,
0: Papa Pia. Papa Pia, of course. Or even if <laughs> it's very popular in theater, Jersey Boys is a jukebox musical, Rock of Ages. Okay. It's just like using popular songs to tell the story instead of songs written for the
1: production. Right. But at least with Jersey Boys, you're telling the story of the guys who sang the songs that are in the show, right? It's almost the biopic thing where you do the Queen movie and you just show them singing all the key songs. This one, it feels very artificial. And that's only one aspect of the artificiality of the emotion. But I guess it's a big one because if you didn't know the songs, you wouldn't maybe pick up as many of the lyrics and you would just go, "Oh yeah, he's singing about meeting the girl and it'd be easier to accept it. But because you know the song, you bring to it a lot of baggage and you have your own understanding of what the song is about. And you go, oh, they're twisting it for that doofus and it's about this goofy jerkwad. And it's immediately fighting with some image that you have in your mind, at least in my mind. And that gives it kind of an uphill battle to win you over. And I guess it did not really win me over.
0: Yeah, and you touched upon something I had in my notes that my main concern with a movie like this is if you go into this with no knowledge of the Beatles music which there are people out there that have no knowledge of these songs sure this movie is going to mean nothing to you at all most of the power of the movie if any exists is just from hearing these songs that people love and are well crafted and have emotional backbones to them being put to this interesting imagery but none of it stands on its own so you have to be connected to these songs somehow to appreciate this
1: yeah that cuts both ways like you do bring your own meaning to it but then like I Said also, you could be offended by what they took your song and tried to use it for. So that could go either way. But yeah, I think what's missing is a real core, a real storytelling core, because it's ostensibly a romance. But it ends up spending more of its time and energy being sort of a bus tour through the 60s with these kind of cheap, meaningless recreations of, hey, look over there, there's the civil rights movement. And look over there, there's the Vietnam War. And- It's Gumpian in its ambition. (laughs) It is. I was like, yeah, this is totally Forrest Gump, except it's more cynical and manipulative and-
0: Hold on. I don't think anything is more cynical and manipulative than (laughs) Forrest Gump.
1: Well, see, (laughs) I'm still a little bit of a Gump fan compared
0: to this. No, I agree, but that's why. Forrest Gump works, is that it's good at manipulating you emotionally. But he's also, you know, I don't want to literate Forrest Gump right now.
1: <laughs> I know we could get into some quicksand going after Forrest Gump, but I do think that Forrest Gump is a character that you care about, whereas Jude is an outline of a guy who's like feeling this way and then he's feeling kind of that way. So he sings a song about it.
0: Yes. And that'll come up when we start going through the story, because you see how these characters kind of pinball between ideologies and their characterization is never consistent because they have to be whatever character character the songs need them to be for that three and a half minutes. And that's what the movie is interested in, not in telling a cohesive story. Speaking of story, do you want to walk us through the first part of it?
1: Sure. Let me jump in and try to make this cohesive. So there's a guy named Jude. He works in the shipyards of Liverpool and he lives with his mom. There's also a girl named Lucy. She lives in the USA and her boyfriend is an army man. Jude goes to America to look for his dad, who turns out to be a janitor at Princeton. Jude hangs around the college and makes friends with a scoundrel named Max. When Max invites Jude home for Thanksgiving, Jude meets Max's little sister, and she turns out to be Lucy, and Jude falls for her. Max then drops out of college, and he and Jude move to New York City, where they rent a room from a singer named Sadie.
0: Yeah, it's all stuff that happens here. Jude and Lucy. Those are yeah. Because they're songs. They're
1: songs. Do you get it? <laughs> it's, that's like the very visible, grown worthy signpost of this movie is just reading the names of the characters. And you're like, oh boy. Yeah. Does Max ever bust out a silver hammer? If he did, I missed it.
0: You know what? He probably fucking did because Prudence comes in through the bathroom window in one scene and somebody that's goes, right. oh, she came in through the bathroom window. So <laughs>
1: They have a lot of fun. They're
0: just full of little Easter eggs like that. Yeah. Yep. We have fun here. But it starts with Jude just singing at us on the beach. Yeah. That's a little, I don't know you, man. I don't care what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. I was like, hey, Jude, tone it down. We just met you. The camera comes in extreme close up on just his eyes and he's staring us down. He's being real intense. And this weird scene that's very emotional and we're trying to decipher why. And we're like, oh, this feels like this guy's girlfriend died because there starts to be pictures of his girlfriend. I'm like, did she drown in the ocean? Is this Dr.
0: Ware's origin story (laughs) that we're getting from Event Horizon? He's got all the pictures
1: of his wife. (laughs) Oh yeah. He's shaving on a space station, except he's sitting on a beach. Sitting on the beach. And I'm like, oh, no, did his girlfriend drown in the water? Oh, wait, we're seeing images from the civil rights movement projected onto the water. Oh, I get it. She drowned in the 60s. The 60s killed her. And he's sad. But it didn't really, though. But it didn't, it was a fake out. That's a tried and true movie technique. You flash forward to the hero at his low point because he thinks she's dead at that point. And then we rewind and get to watch how we got there and then dig out of it. So I didn't blame that. It's just the movie then goes on to keep hitting you with new people and new things. And the exposition is not very strong because they're trying to do it all with songs. So you, you right. feel kind of disoriented for a long stretch of the beginning of the movie.
0: Yeah, because you go right from this beach performance to a montage set to Helter Skelter being sung mm-hmm. by Sadie. And then immediately into these dueling hold me tight covers one being played with a more traditional big bop band and one being played by a punk band uh, yeah. in a very Dewey Cox throughout the years playing Walk Hard and all these different musical styles way <laughs>
1: it was a flashback <laughs> yeah
0: but like that's three songs right off the bat before there's any dialogue before you know anything about these people and I understand they're trying to convey the differences between Lucy and Jude's lifestyle by the different ways they're hearing this one song and sure that comes across but still it's just a little disorienting because who is that person and singing about Helter Skelter. What were those images? What does any of this have to do with these two people?
1: And I guess if you're an informed moviegoer and you know who the actors are who are the leads in the movie, you go, okay, Jude's girlfriend and Lucy's boyfriend are not as important. But if you right. don't if you haven't quite grasped that, if you're thinking that you need to learn who all these people are and maybe each of their stories is important and they're not. Both those characters are tossed away pretty quick.
0: Yeah. And then we meet prudence. They're just throwing more characters at us, singing songs.
1: That's where I really got lost, because it does this weird segue. I realized on a rewatch that there's a logical tie-in that, did you even realize that Lucy's boyfriend joins the army, he gets shipped off to basic training, and basic training happens to be in Prudence's hometown, which is somewhere else in the U.S., and a truck full of soldiers is supposed to show us that.
0: I'll tell you what, Ian, go fuck yourself, (laughs) all right? Take this explanation and shove it up your ass. Not you, by the way, not Ian but the filmmakers because, you know. No. Yeah, That's I didn't get that just... at
1: all. But if you go back, everything is actually literally connected, but it's almost impossible to make those connections. So anyway, it's, yeah, we're thrown in. We just met two couples and then there's a girl sitting in the bleachers and she is singing. This is where I started to lose me. I'm like, oh, it's another person. I don't know where I am. And the movie has this one trick that it loves to use, which is take a Beatles song, have your actor sing it slowed down, sad and dreamy and melodramatic and acapella and don't bring mm-hmm. any accompaniment in until the second verse and they just kind of milk in the emotion and i'm like guys you're just milking stuff that's not there this girl is real sad and we can see they play a little reversal on you it looks like she's pining for the football player but she's pining for the cheerleader and we're like oh they did a twist but she's pining way too hard we haven't even met her we haven't heard her say one word
0: we don't care about her yet so yeah her pain is
1: it's not earned no and we're going to keep not, saying not for that for the audience I yeah. keep saying that about more pain that comes in the second act. But anyway, this is where I started to be like, it's too much. I'm disoriented and I'm, you're not winning me over with these anguished singers.
0: And I can't say for sure that Julie Taymor did this before every horror movie ever made started doing this. But, you know, an upbeat pop song being sung in like a minor key a <laughs> cappella, or at least with very minimal instrumentation is every horror movie trailer for the past 15 years, I think. So it'd be interesting to know if that was a trend before this movie or if somebody's like, oh, songs can sound creepy when you sing them slow and quiet
1: yeah maybe we're more jaded now than we would have been as a contemporary audience
0: i don't think so though (laughs) so then jude gets to princeton he's looking for his dad he runs into max who it's almost like a meet cute because me max drops all his books (laughs) and then jude helps him pick them up and you're like oh is that the direction the movie's going in but no but max in a scene that did not ring true he just happens to know the first and last name of the school janitor who happens to be working over there Jude walks up to him and goes, I'm looking for Professor Wesley Huber. And Max says, I know every professor in Princeton. I've pissed them all off, and there's no Professor Wesley Huber. But oh, wait, there's Wes Huber, because I didn't know that, <laughs> that was short for Wesley, because I'm a character in a movie. But Wes Huber's right over there, the janitor, because I'm a student at Princeton and I'm on a first name basis with the janitor. It just, no. That is not a thing. There's you no... know,
1: just thinking about it now, that's a little joke on Jude as the character and his expectations, but you can't even get it until later when he says, I think you're my dad. Like the movie has not told us that he's going there to find his dad, or maybe it dropped a hint. It did but when like, he
0: talking to his mom, yeah, before he gets on the ship to go to America.
1: I guess maybe I'm dense, but when he was asking about the professor, it wasn't clear to me that this was his dad that he's asking about. And so the joke was right. lost on me that he had these high expectations and then they're dashed. It's the guy cleaning the windows so the whole thing crumbled
0: also nothing wrong with being a janitor i felt like max was a little dismissive oh there's a janitor you buffoon
1: max comes from money even though he is the rebel of his family yeah
0: his dad's the lizard from the spider-man dylan baker giving a terrible performance but we haven't gotten to that scene yet or have we no we uh, yeah who knows
1: where this movie has a very thin narrative structure and you're almost always disoriented about where you are what happens in what order
0: so this thanksgiving scene so max eventually invites him back to his house for thanksgiving they're sitting around the table max Max says he's going to drop out of college and his dad Dylan Baker or if you used to learn his name in this movie the lizard from Spider-Man he never became the lizard but he was like the doctor before he becomes the lizard you know what okay. i mean okay
1: i just you know funny. i know that guy's face from a million different character roles he's a good actor he's bad
0: in this though i don't know why so I had a near panic moment when Max is saying, it's all about what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do, 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 do? And I was like, is he going to start a fucking song right now? But he <laughs> didn't. And I re- I really appreciated that. I-, I just wanted to give the filmmakers their due credit because I would have fucking thrown something at my TV if he like <laughs> broken a song at that moment. But they showed some restraint Dude. and I respect that.
1: That was one of the few sort of long dialogue scenes in the movie. I feel
0: like the acting choices made in the scene were bizarre and they were trying to mimic like Believe it to beaver style acting, which was theatrical and a little over the top, but it just felt out of place. I don't know. It jarred me.
1: Yeah. All of the Max scenes were a little bit off to me because his American accent is really weird. And I I only realized later that he's a British actor. Oh, I
0: was about to ask because yes, I did. Sometimes it's got a little bit like, hey, I'm going to go get a Pepsi Cola. Thing going on you know
1: yeah it's one of those what british people think americans sound like generic new york guy okay i'm
0: really glad because i did notice his accent being a little strange during my second watch but i did not have time to look it up I literally <laughs> yeah. did that second watch two hours ago which is why i'm pointing out very small specific scenes right now that i ordinarily would not
1: yeah,
0: I like that. Uh, now we get Joe Cocker singing, not the song he's famous for covering by the Beatles, but a different one.
1: A different yeah. one. His singing is still good. I think this is the first superstar cameo, right? Which is also this yes. just- throws you for a loop because you're like, wait a minute, this movie is cast with some relative unknowns, which is a fun thing for a movie.
0: Except for Dylan Baker, the lizard from Spider-Man.
1: Yeah, lizard. I mean, lizard Spider-Man gets the top billing and then it's like, oh, I don't know these young actors, fresh faces. This is fun. But yet they stick some really old faces throughout the movie just randomly. And the first one is Joe Cocker. And in the first time you see him, he's dressed up as a stereotypical homeless man. And then he sings a verse. And then... They drop a bomb on you because they cut to a different street scene. And Joe Cocker is a fucking Latin king with a big purple suit suit and a hat. I think he's
0: a pimp. He's credited in the credits as pimp.
1: Yeah, but he, I mean, I don't want to accuse him, but it's almost like he's in brownface in this. He's got a weird painted on pencil mustache goatee thing.
0: Yeah, but he can't be in brownface because he wearing no shoe shine.
1: <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Damn it. You're right. He issued the necessary disclaimer to get out of that one. Damn it. We thought we
0: had him. No. It, it, I don't know if it veers quite into being offensive, but it's definitely walking up to the line.
1: Because he plays three roles, and the first one is a homeless guy with a you know burlap coat and a belt. And then the third one is a hippie, is credited as mad hippie, but just kind of like maybe Joe Cocker might look like that when you run into him naturally. So Probably. neither one of those looks too weird for who Joe Cocker is, is an old white guy. But in the middle is this pimp character, and it's icky. I was like, okay, don't do that. Stop doing that.
0: Yes. Further accentuated by the fact that most of his like employees are african American.
1: Yeah, that's Which true. is not a
0: great look. Even his homeless character, is he's doing weird stuff with his hands. and He seems to be a exaggeration of what you might think like a manic homeless person would be or somebody with mental illness. It seems well, to be like walking <laughs> up to the line of ableism or I know just Joe Cocker.
1: I know exactly what you're <laughs> saying, but that is Joe Cocker. I have to come to Joe Cocker's defense. He's been looking like that since the 60s. That's his signature stage move, which it looks very strange. It always has. But that was not related to this character. I, I can say that. Might have to cut this but he sings it's informative it's informative for people who like you know haven't watched the woodstock 69 movie
0: yeah i wasn't alive then
1: no me neither
0: but the performance is good like vocally i actually don't have a big problem with most of the songs in this movie except a couple jim sturge's performances but we'll get into those
1: okay he's good yeah he can still sing i didn't know he was still alive it seems like he would probably he's not now oh okay sorry joe (laughs) rest in peace
0: yeah R.I.P. When did he die? I don't think it was that long after this movie.
1: Okay. But yeah, he could still bring it. In terms of the guest stars that they came in to sing some lines, he does a nice convincing version of, it's come together that he does, right?
0: Yeah, he does come together. Of course, he's famous for, uh, with a little help from my friends, but he died in 2014. So Mm. seven years after this movie. So the midpoint of between Across the Universe and the present day, he died right in the middle. Okay. Interesting. Makes you think. doesn't?
1: We'll miss you, Joe. But not that outfit. Not that outfit. Yeah, that was uh,
0: tone deaf, let's say. Let's be charitable and call it tone deaf.
1: Yeah. And a strange move for the woman who is famous as a costume designer. You know, She brought the Lion King to the theatrical stage and won Tony's because she was the director and the costume designer and has done some amazing things with costumes. That was a full on clunker.
0: I mean, I can't speak to how, if it was a good pimp costume, but we don't need a pimp costume <laughs> in this movie is the idea. So right. was there anything else from this section you wanted to touch on?
1: No, let's see what other fun things and songs happen.
0: Cool. It is the 1960s and big things are happening in am America. For instance, Lucy's boyfriend is killed in the Vietnam War. Also, a little boy is killed in the civil unrest in Detroit, after which his brother, a guitar player named Jojo, moves to New York and joins Sadie's band. Lucy comes to New York to visit, tells Max he's been drafted, and gets into a relationship with Jude. They all go on a psychedelic road trip together, after which Max joins the army and goes to war. Sadie decides to part with JoJo and her band and go solo, and Lucy gets increasingly involved with some radical anti-war activists, which puts a strain on her relationship with Jude. Jude confronts Lucy at the activist headquarters, after which she moves out of the apartment and leaves him. All right, so this section of the movie really tries to tie everything into what's going on in society, man. Yeah. Society, comma, man.
1: Yeah, man. Whether it succeeds or not, we will have to litigate now. This is where I got mad at the movie. I mean, a lot of shit happens. But, you know, I was already like, Prudence, you're losing me. I'm not feeling the emotion. And then they're like, oh, you thought that was good? You thought that was annoying? That was unearned? Well, let's show you the civil rights movement, ladies and gentlemen. Pull back the curtain and there's a small child hiding beneath a burned out car as riots are going around him and he's singing Let It Be. Again, very quietly, minimal backing tracks, very emotive. Good singer. This kid was good. We don't know his name. We didn't get to meet him. he didn't ever say anything he's just hiding amidst a extremely violent outburst of civil unrest. And then, wouldn't you know, the next scene, he's lying in a coffin, and we are staring at his dead face, and everyone is weeping over him, and it's so emotionally overwrought, and there's a gospel choir singing their asses off beautifully. But I'm like, no, you didn't earn this. You didn't even make any commentary. You're just using a dead child as a prop, and you're doing emotional gymnastics to try to wring some emotion out of us. But I was actually offended on that scene. What did you think?
0: So I think if you listened to this performance of Let It Be on the soundtrack of this movie, that's great. Hey, It is a very good performance and right. you can start to feel yourself getting caught up in it until you look at it from a more logical standpoint like you have. What, what does any of this mean? Why does any of this matter to us? What is the story? And if it's just a device to get Jojo on a bus to New York because he can't deal with staying in his hometown after what happened to his brother, there are other ways to do that. Sure. Introducing a character and killing him literally in the span of a song. Yeah, and a small child, expecting- man. It's fucking <laughs> yeah, cold. Yeah, it is. We've already used the word unearned, but this is probably the most egregious example of it in the movie.
1: Yeah, they're trying to pull our puppet strings. And it's also offensive. I can't even describe the negative connotations of using the civil rights movement as a prop to just be like, look at all the crying and the screaming and the dying. Isn't that awful? And it's like, you have nothing else to say about this. You just wanted to use it to evoke some
0: pain. Right. And all viewed through the lens of four white British guys that's another layer to it.
1: Yeah, well, the Beatles were smart enough to stay away from that stuff because they knew they didn't actually have anything to add to that.
0: I mean, Blackbird was about the civil rights movement. Like, okay. They did address it in some of their songs, but That's not, true. Then, there's, the, yeah. there's
1: that one song, which does it in a very roundabout way, and which is actually artful, obviously, and not taking anything away from Blackbird, but they didn't, I don't know, maybe you could say that some of their other late 60s music was influenced by the events that were transpiring globally, but this movie just used it very cheaply. And they didn't stop there. They give you two funerals for the price of one. They intercut back and forth to Lucy's soldier boyfriend, who also happened to have died in the war. And does he have we, a name, by the way? Do he we ever have does, a name?
0: He's he said, like a pretty important character to the movie. I mean, she you certainly know?
1: thinks so. They spend a lot of time on her just anguishing and grieving him. And I look back, I think he says one line in the movie and it's, I get a furlough after two weeks. Like he
0: has a line, which is yeah, it is like that. It's like
1: no meaning. He doesn't say I love you and I will always be by your side. It's just a very practical line. And and then he's dead and we're weeping over him too. Certainly everyone's crying at his funeral. This is where I was really like, fuck this
0: movie. Yes. Did you ever come back from the brink?
1: I slowly came back from the brink. I did a partial rewatch and I watched it with the music turned up and tried to just be like, what if I just enjoy these little music videos they did for these Beatles songs? And I get it. It has some value with that. I'm not totally writing it off, but if you expect too much from this movie, it can really make you mad. Well,
0: like I said, I've listened to the soundtrack a couple of times and that's a good way to experience this movie, I think, sure. is through song, but without the images and all the bullshit associated with them. <laughs> well, then we get this scene of Prudence being coaxed out of the closet. You called this out. This, Yikes. It's very subtle metaphor that I don't think a lot of people picked up on. She's gay, <laughs> you see, and they have to get her to come out of the closet.
1: Damn, I was like, man, that is cheesy. Dear Prudence, won't you come out of the literal closet? And she doesn't even she doesn't even talk. That's what makes it even more. They think they're making this cute point about the struggles of LGBTQ people. And instead they took the gay character and they gave her no lines. And all she does is sit around and mope and weep and and just
0: pines after people. And
1: everyone else does the talking for her. And they're like, come out of the closet. Stop being such a mopey, mopey, bopey. I don't don't have a what's
0: (laughs) mopey bopey.
1: I don't, no, know that I don't like that at all. I'm definitely, I don't either. I hate it. I might just end it out. <laughs> no, Stop being so no. mopey, Prudence. Come out of the closet. And it's like, it's another prop they're using her as. And she ends up not being very likable because they don't let her ever express anything smart or nuanced.
0: I agree with everything you just said about this character and storyline. It felt like they just wanted, I don't know. The fact that her name's Prudence certainly factored into why she's in the movie. Like <laughs> They were like, well, wouldn't it be cool? We had another character named after a Beatles song. And also, you know, let's make her an LGBTQ character so we can have representation in our movie. And maybe if you don't think about it hard, you'll think we're being representative.
1: Yeah. Don't think about anything too hard in this. In fact, you should probably tune in, turn on and drop out. All this pain is making me want to do some psychedelic drugs and go on a road trip.
0: Man, I fucking hate Bono. Uh, So (laughs) yeah, I don't like Bono at all. Like U2's got a couple of good songs. I'll give him that. Okay. I just, something about him. I find him like douchey. And I know he's very philanthropic, and that's great. But that's neither here nor there.
1: I'm not sure what to make of him. I know what you're talking about. His stage persona is a giant douche, and so is that really him? Is that a rock star character that he plays? I think it's really him,
0: though, man. Because have you ever seen Rattle and Hum, the documentary that was made in the late '80s, early '90s?
1: I remember it being out, but I don't remember anything from it.
0: If you watch that, I think it's pretty clear that's not a stage persona. Oh, okay, that's
1: fair. He's just a douche again. <laughs>
0: philanthropic though, so it's hard to fully hate him. Yeah, but I, I certainly didn't smile when he showed up on screen.
1: So to explain him showing up on screen, he is the second big rock star cameo in this. He shows up as Doctor Robert, leading the youngsters on a converted school bus across the country doing drugs, and he's singing them. What is he even? S- he's
0: singing "I Am the Walrus." Oh right, yeah. He's also fucking thirty years older than all these kids that are on his bus doing drugs. That's kind of a red flag, isn't it?
1: I just wanted him to sing more because, you know, you can like Bono or not as a person, but the guy can sing a rock song. He can really hit those notes. And you know me, that's what I want for my musicals. I want my singers to just belt out some stuff. And he kind of didn't get to, and he kind of just bopped around the bus and couldn't figure out what emotion he was going to play. And I couldn't really blame him because there wasn't really anything. His role in the movie was just to bop around a bus and sing a song we knew.
0: Yeah, and just say things that sounded deep but didn't really mean anything which i think the movie was aware that's what he was doing but also it's what the movie is doing without being aware of it so it's a fun juxtaposition it's uh yeah
1: unintended meta commentary and he just
0: leaves all these are they all they're all the way in california at this point
1: yeah then he's a jerk at the end he's like well you don't get to be on the bus if you're not what i don't even remember what the plot point you're either was on
0: the bus or you're not Yeah, I don't remember why exactly he kicked him off. It doesn't seem important.
1: (laughs) It shows how little it meant to the story. And then they jump right to Eddie Izzard, who is at least trying harder to bring some energy to her psychedelic version of Mr. Kite, which is another one of those Beatles songs with a lot of nonsense lyrics.
0: Not my favorite era of the Beatles. They're silly. We're on acid a lot. Era. Mm -hmm. These songs mean nothing to me. But yeah, Eddie's given it her all. But visually, the sequence is not too bad. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. I know Julie Taymor is famous for these big puppets that she has like right. she's able to design and engineer and they get a lot of use out of them in this sequence but i'm pretty sure she invented the babadook
1: with one of them <laughs> i missed the babadook the babadook was in the background somewhere or i think the, the babadook's either.
0: in this movie like this is where he came from we'll try to find a screen grab of it and put it in the show notes but I, it's the fucking babadook you guys seven years before his film debut this is his origin story he already looks at the babadook so i guess it's not his origin but it's a prequel of yeah. some sort Hanging out with Mr.
1: Kite in the psychedelic circus.
0: And there's some striking imagery here, clearly well-designed, but none of it means anything. right? (laughs) We're talking like this whole thing goes on for like 20 minutes between when they meet Dr. Robert at the party to when they leave Mr. Kite. That's like a good 20 minutes of the movie.
1: Yeah. Like we said, they don't invest that much in the other stuff. It's like the psychedelic stuff gets the royal treatment for some reason. And you're like, okay, you put on a show, but- what did it mean? And again, do we credit the filmmakers with actually trying to provide us a meta-commentary on the meaninglessness of doing drugs? Probably not. No, they just thought this would be a cool-looking scene.
0: No, I actually learned reading an AMA and Ask Me Anything they do on Reddit sometimes. Mm-hmm. So Julie Taymor and Jim Sturgis did one just a couple of years ago, actually, because they re-released this movie into theaters for like a long weekend. Just mm, okay. to, It has a cult audience now. And during the Ask Me Anything, Julie Taymor learned that most of her act were on mushrooms for this sequence and she was not aware of it so at least the actors certainly did not agree that the futility of drugs was the message of the scene (laughs) because they were like you know what we should do is drugs
1: yeah they took a certain lesson from it and i hope they had a good trip and they had fun
0: it seemed like it i mean i didn't see anyone like Rocking back and forth and crying in the background of any of these (laughs) scenes. So
1: that would have been interesting, but no, that didn't. That would have been me
0: if, like, I was in this movie and they tried to appear. I I do not do well with psychedelics. I'm too anxious. (laughs) That's a bad combination.
1: You don't want to see those giant face creatures mooning around at you and flipping and. I don't want to see them sober.
0: They're very scary looking. Yeah,
1: they're pretty scary.
0: If that's what psychedelics make you see, I don't know why anyone would want to take them. It doesn't make (laughs) it look fun. It doesn't, right?
1: No, I get you. I'm scared of all those things. I think I always yeah, have been. I'll
0: stick to my marijuana, the devil's lettuce, and uh, play cool from
1: there. So let's segue from this psychedelic period to this very gritty, real, realistic relationship drama. All of a sudden, Jude and Lucy are kind of on the outs, things got more and more tense. And it blows up in this office fight scene. What did you think of the office fight?
0: First of all, shouts to my boy, Logan Marshall Green as Paco. Uh, Great actor, Tom Hardy Jr. Some people call him. (laughs) Not me, though. I respect him. Star of one of the greatest, most underrated shows ever, Quarry. Ran for one season on Cinemax, of all places. And also, he was in Spider-Man as well. He was the shocker. (laughs) Oh, man. The first one, Homecoming, right? That was the first one? Yeah, the new ones.
1: This guy, I tell you, is bringing so much baggage to the scene. He could (laughs) never live up to uh, all the expectations you have for him. And I I take it that he did not. No,
0: Paco. He's, it's a fine performance, but... I agreed with Jude. Like, he did seem creepy. Oh, yeah.
1: I thought he was totally supposed to be actually a creep. I wasn't sure if,
0: like, we were supposed to think Jude was overreacting or something. I was like, I see his point.
1: (laughs) I think it was a little bit nuanced. This was where the movie actually had realistic emotion and and drama between their characters. Yeah, this guy did believe in his cause, but he was also a little skeevy and was probably hitting on the girls. And also, Lucy was spending too much time with him, but she had a real purpose behind and she believed in what she was doing. And it was like, okay, now there's some real drama between. These people that feels real to me. And I think especially after that psychedelic nonsense period, I was like, okay, I can get this. This is a boyfriend, girlfriend spending too much time with their skeevy boss, and he loses it and he goes a little overboard and he confronts him in the office. And I was like, Thank God, there's some people just expressing emotions that I can understand for a minute.
0: For sure. Yeah, it's a much more grounded section of the movie. All that being said, I understand why you like this scene. <laughs> Granted, I think I like this movie more than you do, but I hate this scene. There's a couple of <laughs> reasons why, and I'm gonna list them for you in this okay. form. Yes. One, the song he picks, way too on the nose. Like he's yelling at Paco about how he says he wants a revolution. But the rest of the lyrics of the song don't actually fit the scene. It's just that one line. and They were like, well, yeah, he's a revolutionary. So he's sing revolution at him in an yeah. angry way. Two, Fair. I hate the vocal performance in this scene. Like it's way too, I don't know, like Liam Gallagher, but in a bad way. Okay. I don't even know how to describe it. Play a little clip of it or something so people could see what I mean. He's like, you know, it's going to be. You
1: know, it's going to be.
0: It's just too British. That sums it up. I don't know. And I really hate, and this is a personal thing that I have. So I understand that this is my own issue. When a character in a musical sings at another character and the other character responds by talking back. If you're going to have a sing fight, they both got to be singing or you just got to have a talking fight. Don't give me this half-ass shit.
1: I know what you mean. It's a dorky thing. It feels very theatrical when that happens. I get
0: secondhand embarrassed from it. Like, I don't know why.
1: (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. Like, Lucy is like, what are you doing? And he's like, no, it's going to (laughs) be. All right. All right.
0: And Paco's like, What's this guy's problem? I don't know. The whole thing just feels very cheesy.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, your laundry list of complaints is totally understandable. Yeah. So I was happy to see him punch the dude, and uh, and I guess yes. that w- that's what won me over to this. So point. I
0: think we're agreeing with the intention behind the scene being yeah. good, and that this is the right direction to take the movie. And I'm just disagreeing with the actual the execution execu- of it. Yeah,
1: you did not like the execution for very good reasons.
0: But I do agree that. This feels like a real movie that I can get behind. And that kind of crystallizes what I felt about this movie was like, if you just made this into a love story, I probably would have been more on board or maybe had the other stuff more in the periphery. But the focus of the movie is all over the place to a point where you can't really care too much about any one point.
1: I feel exactly the same way. And the movie pivots around this scene because you're like, oh, they just got real. And then it goes off into weird symbolic stuff that's not really well grounded again. Yeah. Now, does the strawberry scene happen after the fight? I got a little confused on it going back to- the No,
0: strawberries ones. happens right before. So Paco brings the TV into their house and that's- Jude okay. gets real mad about that because fuck TV, yo. Then he nails a bunch of strawberries to the wall and then that's art, I he's, guess.
1: Yeah, he's surly. He, we didn't mention that during this whole time in New York, he's slowly morphing into an artist for no particular reason. He likes to draw and then he's just doing more and more of it. But that's a thread that's running beneath- things that kind of wouldn't matter if that didn't happen to him, except when we get to strawberries, because he's trying to draw an apple. He's already mad. Things are starting to boil over with Lucy and he's trying to draw an apple. reference
0: in the background there with the apple. Yeah. That was their their record label. Yeah.
1: He's trying to do a logo and he's trying to draw an apple and he's like having a hard time drawing an apple. He's like, fuck apples. And he goes and he gets some strawberries. (laughs) And we've never seen a strawberry before in this movie, but suddenly they're incredibly symbolic. He does all this work where he's pinning strawberries to the wall. He's painting various abstract strawberries. And they're now a profound metaphor for his life. And And also for bombs? For everything. I mean, just the whole 60s, you just go, strawberries, man. And people are like, oh, dude, I know what you mean, strawberries. Am I right? (laughs) Lucy comes home and sees that he has had this sort of blow up where he went crazy and it triggered this artistic outburst. He's really profoundly expressed his pain and his uncertainty in his life through the medium of strawberries. And she sees that and she fucking moves out. She doesn't say shit. She packs up her stuff. I'm like, is she allergic to strawberries? What do we take from
0: this? It's her least favorite pie is strawberry rhubarb. And she said, I know where this is going. He's going to find all these strawberries in the wall and be like, I'll make a pie. When he snaps out of his artistic trance that he's been in (laughs) for this whole section.
1: Yeah. We missed the scene where her mother told her there's only one thing. If a man gets into strawberries, that's how, you know, it's time to leave.
0: You leave. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And you don't look back.
0: Strawberry me once. Shame on you. Strawberry me twice. (laughs) Cream on me. Uh, I'm going to sample Ian saying cream on me as like a soundboard (laughs) thing that we could drop in every now and then. Oh, so yeah, they're broken up now. Yeah. That's where we're at.
1: Jude is hating it. And did I get this right? He's in his low point. She's walked out on him. He doesn't even quite understand why, because she didn't say anything. She just packed up while he was away. And he sings the title track, Across the Universe.
0: Uh, Yeah, I, I believe that's correct.
1: I'm like, what the fuck is this supposed to mean? He's supposed to be at his greatest point of emotional turmoil. And he's singing a song Whereas George Harrison, who has just absorbed all this Eastern mysticism and is like, fuck everything. I don't care what happens. I am completely unperturbed. I am just going to be over here chanting. And that's like the opposite of what Jude is feeling. So I'm like, this was the worst choice at this point. Well, yeah,
0: but I don't think there's been a lot of evidence of a, a profound understanding of what the actual meaning of the songs used at any point during the movie is. <laughs>
1: so you're like, even why are you still trying to make the songs match the scenes?
0: I agree, though. Like, there, there should be an effort made. And I think they do sometimes. But you No, know,
1: sometimes they fit pretty well. This one was the one that yeah. was just like, all right, we're going to put the title track in here because it's a big point in the movie.
0: You made a good point. I agree with you.
1: Yeah, it's a jukebox, it's... man. You don't know what's coming on next. You do, though. That's how a jukebox works. No, but... You the th- pick the song. <laughs> the key thing, <laughs> (laughs) about the jukebox is there might be an asshole at the other end of the bar who snuck in a bunch of stupid songs to troll the rest of the bar. And you have to sit there and listen to them and do scenes based on the songs that he
0: picked. Did I ever tell you that story? I used to do that. Um, Oh, no. (laughs) I used to put a Christmas Shoes by new song on oh at every bar that had a, a TouchTunes jukebox. Oh, shit. And then I found out there's an app you can download. So you can play songs from your phone on jukeboxes and you can set your radius to 20 miles.
1: Oh my God.
0: So when you're living in Queens, there's how many bars within a 20 mile <laughs> radius? So if you know your friends are going to be somewhere and you're not even there, you could just... Drop a track in on them.
1: Oh my God, you're horrible! That is.
0: Yeah, I almost got a fight on Christmas Day for playing that in a bar. So, you know, if you're in a bar on Christmas Day, yeah, your Christmas hasn't been all that jolly. Already feeling
1: sad, maybe. I think I heard that song "Christmas Shoes" once, and I nearly punched myself. Just I was so. I said I wanna
0: buy these shoes for my so, mama, please.
1: It's so bad, yeah. but you know we should really say that for one of our holiday episodes. That's true. It's
0: true. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll be December.
1: Okay. Well, enjoy yeah. folks. This has been a holiday <laughs> musical interlude.
0: Subscribe to our Patreon to hear me sing the whole song <laughs> from beginning to end. With kidding. We don't have a Patreon. So yeah, that is a thing I have been known to do, is okay. terrorize people with
1: jukeboxes. Well, it happened once or twice to Julie Taymor. She had to do a whole JoJo subplot just because somebody threw the wrong song on.
0: The Jimi Hendrix song, I'm assuming. Also, like, the characters in this movie are not always representative of Beatles songs or characters. Like, JoJo's pretty... Clearly, aping Jimi Hendrix at times.
1: Yeah. I mean, in all kinds of ways. And yeah. he's not bad at it. Even Sadie is like a Janice Joplin type figure. But at least she had to actually sing that. They found this actor and she can really sing. And she does kind of resemble Janice Joplin in her voice, but she also can sing her ass off. But the Jimi Hendrix thing is a construction. Agent. I just have him doing Hendrix things in all the songs and wearing purple right. headbands.
0: And then Max, I think, was a stand-in for Kurt Cobain. No, I'm kidding.
1: (laughs) Oh, shit, I was totally believing you. He's absolutely... (laughs) I
0: mean, he's got the look down. Like, he could have played him in the biopic. You want to walk us through the last part of the movie?
1: Here's how it comes home. Max is wounded in the war. Then Jude goes to a protest to try to reconnect with Lucy. Violence breaks out, and as Jude rushes to protect Lucy, he gets arrested. He's deported back to Liverpool, and he resumes his old life there. Then Jude sees in the news that Lucy's protest group headquarters blew up and he fears the worst. Then he has a vision of Max singing Hey Jude to him which inspires him to go back to America. Back in America, a reunited Sadie and JoJo are having a rooftop concert, and Max conspires to have Jude and Lucy both attend. The cops show up to break things up, but Jude sings All You Need Is Love, which convinces the angry cops to relent, and it also makes Lucy fall back in love with him. And Jude and Lucy go off together in the sky with diamonds. Of course they do. Sung by Bono again. Son of a bitch.
0: The whole scene in the military hospital, I had written down, and I believe my notes, let me just double check this. Yes, extremely goofy is what I've written here.
1: (laughs) this was like, oh, this is our chance to bring the war and the psychedelia together because Max is getting shot up with a weird drug, which contains a naked woman that may or may not be Salma Hayek, who is also playing seven nurses that are attending to him. And there's a dancing priest who's kind of a whirling dervish and freaking around. And I don't know what any of it means. It's all just like he may be
0: the whirlingest of dervishes. He is whirling his little ass off but all of it's pretty weird and kind of upsetting.
1: Yeah. And it's supposed to be. Now we're going to freak you out with the aftermath of what the war did to these young men. But you're just doing weird colors and dances and drugs and none of it means anything.
0: Right. If this is all supposed to be bad, like you did the same shit with Eddie Izzard 25 minutes ago. Was that <laughs> supposed to be bad too? There's no thematic like through line here. I don't know what I'm supposed to feel at any given moment.
1: It was another kind of throwaway scene where somebody sketched out something that like, oh this would look really cool. And they're like, yeah, do it. We got a, just the song for it, which also happiness is a warm gun. I guess that sort of ties to the war, but he's back from the war at this point, and it's another one of the real stretches in terms of trying to make the song say anything about the scene. But before we move on from Salma Hayek's scene, I just want to make a note. A couple things happened in this movie that are highly relevant to Blast Zone, the podcast. If you are a regular listener of the show, oh. you may realize that this is the second movie that we've covered within this month where Salma Hayek shows up and adds absolutely nothing to the movie. It's unfortunate. <laughs> she did it in Wild Wild West. We love Salma. And we wish she could have done something more interesting in this movie. this movie, she's only in it for two minutes, so you can't really blame her. Yeah, this is a true cameo, whereas
0: Wild Wild West, she was top-billed or third from the top. She's (laughs) on the poster,
1: and she still didn't really get to add anything meaningful. And also, not only that, this is the second movie this month after the Ghostbusters reboot, where big shit goes south at Columbia University in New York City. Isn't that weird? Look at
0: that. We're tying things together thematically without even realizing it.
1: We are weaving a web of movies on our podcast for people to just go deep and explore. Yeah, the climactic protests happens at Columbia. And that's where Christian Wake's character was unceremoniously dumped for believing in ghosts. When
0: you say it like that, it does sound very silly. So how exactly does Jude get back in? Like, what does he apply for a visa? How does he get back
1: into the country? Yeah, this is weird because just five minutes ago, he's arrested and deported as a violent uh, protester. And then when it's time to come back in, they're just like, oh, hey, welcome to America. Come on in. Yeah.
0: The way I interpret it is like he went back to the UK and did his due diligence to go back to America lawfully. And that's why he's being welcomed that way. But it's not spelled out at all. Also, fuck Phil Scully, because that (laughs) fucking scoundrel, his British girlfriend, her name is Molly. When he's first going to America, she's like, oh, who's going to dance with me next week? He's like, anyone but Phil Scully. Right. And then when he goes back to UK, who she shacked up with fucking phil scully
1: it was phil she had phil's baby or was she pregnant with phil's baby they already have a kid i think
0: she she already had the kid it's unclear how long they're all in like how long jude's in america
1: (laughs) because of the drug induced haze no one knows how many months might have passed on that bus trip
0: time is a flat circle uh (laughs) she has a baby
1: with phil and that's where you see phil because you hear him named in the beginning which you know better not dance with phil scully while i'm gone and then you see him at the end and you realize that's phil when i saw him at the end i'm like Hold on. Is this the guy who's busting Jude's balls when they're in line to pick up their paychecks? Going, the pub's already been open for five minutes. Was that also Phil is Scully? The Phil
0: Scully Extended Universe. I think it is.
1: Yeah. I think that was Phil too. So Phil maybe gets a spinoff or maybe he's featured in the sequel.
0: Is Phil the villain of the movie? Somehow. <laughs> he's
1: pulling the strings from behind the scenes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Paco is a sleeper agent of Phil's. He's part of the ship <laughs> Welder's <laughs> Union too.
1: <laughs> now that is cool. I definitely want to see that yeah. thread
0: explored. Hey man, Julie wants to do the sequel. So that could be a thing. Jim Sturgis and uh, Evan Rachel Wood are both in.
1: We should take a lunch so. at the Ivy and try to pitch her these ideas. Uh, I th-
0: Okay. <laughs> I was trying to reference a different restaurant and be like, I think she's more of a this person. But I was like, I don't know any L.A. restaurants. for my I, I don't about? either.
1: And I live in L.A. It's <laughs> the only one I can think of.
0: The Apple Pan. I don't know. Is she an Apple Pan type of person? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. I would
1: go there with you. If you come here, we'll go to the Apple Pan. We'll get burgers. Deal. Pitch each other some movies.
0: Some episodes. <laughs> All right. So th-
1: what else do we have? I think that's it, right? We need to make fun of one thing in the Hey Jude song, which is already ridiculous. Jude's in one bar and Max is in a bar in the US and he's singing to mm-hmm. him out of the mirror behind the bar and it's goofy and the whole sentiment is very cheesy because it's like, hey, are you depressed? All you need to do is cheer up. But if all of this mm-hmm. song hadn't already been cheesy enough for you, rah rah, rally the hero, stop moping around and go claim your girlfriend back. Then he steps outside the bar and there's an interlude where there's a garbage can solo by a drunk ship worker doing a kind of a stomp routine where he stomping and beating on cans and i'm like where the fuck did that come from we've been at this movie for two hours and there have not been any silly theatrical things like that and they're like now's the time get the stomp scene in because this is your last chance
0: is this like the john peters mechanical spider somebody was like we (laughs) gotta have the garbage can drums (laughs) maybe work them in somehow i don't care how it's well, so cheesy because
1: the, the movie doesn't have that kind of sense of humor even. It's this no. really theatrical thing. He just does a drum solo and then he goes back into being a drunk ship worker. So it's like this magical reality where people can be musicians for a moment and then they snap back into their It's like roles. they sprinkle
0: Beatles dust on him for a minute and he became yeah, a garbage it's tr- can drummer. It's
1: trippy and weird and just so corny too. It's not even a good garbage can stomp drum solo. It was just kind of a hack. You're saying you job. could do better? Like, give me a chance.
0: Give me a chance, Julie. <laughs> Put me in. The sequel will just be a garbage can drum solo battle across the universe, too. Everyone who loved the first one's going to be so confused.
1: Drunk ship workers from all across the world will unite to do Mortal Kombat in the alleys.
0: And then it wraps up with All You Need Is Love, which is a sentiment that I think we, we've all discovered is complete bullshit, right? Like, Does that yeah. long, does song lose some of its power when we're like 50 years later and it's clearly not the case that All You Need Is Love?
1: The Beatles played that in an interesting way, where they were smart enough that they didn't literally believe that in a totally Pollyanna-ish way, but yet also they were pie-in-the-sky hippies, so they had some earnestness behind it when they first sang it. But at this point, it just sounds... Dumb and also so predictable. Like, maybe throw us a curveball here. Don't give us the most obvious and using it to stop the angry cops because he's wait. Did he just say love? That's all we need. Okay. I'm not an angry policeman about to bash your head in anymore. I'm now
0: grooving. Yeah. I think Kylie Jenner was there with a fucking Pepsi, too, <laughs> exactly. handed it over to the cops. It's the same. It's the same shit. <laughs>
1: yeah. Exactly. That's all that was missing.
0: Yeah. It's very trite. I would say this movie's fun to make fun of because it's a musical and those are inherently silly. Yeah. Don't come at me, musical fans. But I didn't hate it. I think it was scatterbrained, uh, Focus more on the love story. And you've got something on your hands, but you were all over the place, didn't know what to focus on. And the movie really suffers. And also the psychedelic scene got to cut that shit way down.
1: Yeah. No, I'm totally with you. I think you have the right recipe for fixing this movie.
0: Well, that was across the universe. Not bad. Not great. Better on rewatch, I found. I softened up on it a little bit, which is kind of your go-to right. move. But I was taken by Evan Rachel Wood in the performance. I think she was really good. I think Sturgis was a better actor than a singer in this, and he's actually a musician, so I was surprised. But something about his vocal performance was a little off for me.
1: It was just okay. It didn't bother me, but it didn't stand out. It was kind of like what you expect from, oh, you cast an actor and they're a little bit talky singy sometimes and a little bit not overextending themselves so they don't expose the weaknesses in their voice
0: and i believe the singing was done live which probably further uh, oh
1: interesting yeah i felt like if i would do a musical i would just be like get in the studio and fucking nail these tracks and fix every little part till they're perfect and then just come lip sync them for me or just,
0: not- just hire somebody to sing for me you know god bless russell crowe for trying with les miz but yeah just get somebody to sing for him so we touched on it a little bit when I was giving my usual spiel about how the movie was made. There seemed to be some conflict between Tamor and the studio as this movie was getting revved up to be released. They clearly had cold feet about the length of the movie. And I think they have a point to be fair, but the way they did it is pretty underhanded to cut her movie without her knowing and then start showing it to test audiences to be like, see, people like it more this way. It's <laughs> yeah. a kind of a shitty thing to do, right?
1: It's cold, but I guess, yeah, that's why the directors are always fighting for final cut so hard, because if you don't have control, you can get stampeded over very easily.
0: But then I found researching that whole situation, it kind of led to bad buzz about the movie because you have all this behind the scenes conflict and strife. And then the way Tamor was characterized in a lot of the trades was pretty negative and kind of gross Painted in much the same way like Elaine May was as being, you know, manic and controlling and emotional and irrational. Felt like some hints of misogyny in the way that was all handled. And again, I'm not saying the movie's not too long because it is. But still, you hired her to make a movie. If she has final cut, she has final cut. And she eventually released her version of it. And we don't know what the other version was. We don't know if it was better or worse. Making something shorter doesn't automatically make it better. Just like making something longer doesn't automatically make it better. But I feel like that engendered a lot of bad will towards this movie before it even came out. And then it got a half-assed release. 954 screens is not like a traditional wide release. So it was already hamstrung by the studio's approach to it. Is it any shock then that it failed to recoup its budget? You didn't really give it a chance.
1: It seems like they got stuck between, is this an art? movie is this an art house film is this for a very narrow audience but it's the fucking Beatles I mean who's sold more records than that like how shouldn't you be going for everybody with it
0: and it doesn't have an art house budget to be no not at all this is an expensive movie like this would be an expensive movie for a crime drama let alone a musical yeah typically doesn't cost quite as much but yeah I mean so I don't think there's any big mystery about why this movie failed there was conflict between the studio the distributor and the director and reviews weren't great it didn't have a ton of star power at the time like the Beatles Beatles were clearly the star of this movie if you looked at the marketing which is going to appeal to a certain demographic. But then you have these young actors that people don't know. And all these kind of psychedelic scenes are shown in the trailer. Something tells me like boomers aren't rushing out to see Eddie Izzard with 25 foot paper mache monsters behind her. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's a failure to connect the dots there because obviously I know the Beatles were psychedelic, but I don't think the boomers that loved the Beatles that much are taking LSD on the weekends anymore. Like they probably want something a little safer.
1: That was kind of a phase for the Beatles and like the people who are into them. I mean, people still turn on strawberry f- fields and groove out to that man like i could see the boomers doing that but yeah at this point they're putting on blackbird and you know some choice selections from
0: the white album probably with a nice bottle of chardonnay yeah and their
1: recliners i mean that's what i'm doing i'm not a boomer but i was a beatles fan as a kid so i caught up to that generation a little bit um yeah. No, I totally take your point. This was targeted weird. And the half of the movie or more is like, let us teach you about the sixties in case you never heard about the sixties. We're going to give you a nice lesson. And like who wants that? Who needs that?
0: And who wants it? And what's the Venn diagram of people that like really love the Beatles and have no idea what the fuck was going on in the sixties. You yeah. know, like I feel like one hand kind of washes the other with that. Thing. If you love the Beatles, you probably know a little bit about the sixties already.
1: Yeah, you need a more nuanced take on it,
0: not like yeah. You don't need the fucking Fisher Price My First (laughs) Sixties Crash Course you're getting here.
1: (laughs) Thank you. That's the metaphor that I couldn't. You're ready for the next step up. That's perfect.
0: All right. Was that your wrap up, or do you have more?
1: I have one little observation that I would be happy to share, that sort of encompasses more movies. So I've started to really believe that there's something about the live theater that teaches a slightly wrong lesson to the people who practice it, who have success in live theatrical venues. And that the idea is that spectacle is enough, that you can entertain people with spectacle alone, or that even smaller than that, that just the energy of warm bodies sharing a physical space can stand in for real connection, for good storytelling, for engaging storytelling. And we saw it in Cats, which is all about vibe over substance. And we even saw it in Happy Time Murders, where like jokes that would have worked with the energy of a live theater fell flat on the screen. You put it on the screen and the physical connection is cut between the audience and the performers. And the same moves that might've been thrilling in person in a live theater kind of leave you cold because the tactics feel cheap and it, it can't, pull your heartstrings through the screen without that extra layer of good writing and good storytelling, which unfortunately was the piece that was missing from this movie.
0: I think that's very well observed. That's a good catch and kind of a through line we're seeing with some of these theatrical adaptations or even movies that just have like their roots in theatricality in general. (laughs) Excellent wrap up there, Ian. Good
1: job. Thank you. Or that whole thing might have just been rationalization for why I'm a jerk about the theater and hate certain movies, which is fine, too. That's fine, too.
0: No, I don't think so. But listeners,
1: if you think so, please let us know and uh, yell at Ian on
0: Twitter or something.
1: BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Always open (laughs) for feedback.
0: That's right. And on Twitter, we're at BlastZonePod. Hit us up. suggestions feedback compliments mostly Please. we prefer those thank you yeah we'll be back next week we're doing a cool one next week yeah now that we have the schedule ironed out i could say stuff like this until we eventually have to change something and then you're like hey stop talking about <laughs> the next episode at the end of the episode in case we have to change it but we're doing the black dahlia
1: yes very exciting
0: Palma's take on James Elroy's novel. And I'm excited because I saw it in theaters and then once on DVD before I was like, hey, I don't think I like this movie because I was a big Elroy fan. So I really wanted to like this movie, but I'm excited to go back to it now as an older gentleman and see how I feel about it.
1: You and I are both fans of traditional noir and neo-noir and of the classic 70s era filmmakers like Brian De Palma. So there's a lot to chew on in this movie for us. I think it's going to be really fun to talk about. So
0: check that out. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the pod wherever you listen. They allow you to rate and review not all them do that can't rate and review on spotify but you can subscribe they yeah. call it follow but it means the same thing
1: do what you, you can. can
0: we'll see you next time in the blast zone
1: see you next time in the blast zone, the blast zone.